You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of reneweconomy.com.au and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well and uh, without more ado, we've got a special interview this week. We do indeed. Look, 2022 is going to be a big year for many different reasons. Political, technology, um, just the transition of the grid. And one of the people, well, many of the people most affected have been around in this industry for decades. And Energy Australia is one of the big three utilities. And um, earlier on today, we got to speak to Energy Australia CEO, Mark Collette. Mark Collette, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you very much, Giles. Wonderful to be here. Let's get politics out of the way first. We've got an election coming up in May. Um, we know that te- technology is changing very fast. Costs are coming down on all sorts of different technologies and will come down. We know that uh, customer demand is changing both individually and at the corporate level. We know that business models are changing. Um, you and many of the other established um, companies are facing sort of big changes and new competitors and what have you, does it matter that you have a government which is considered to be a handbrake on the energy transition or does it, um, or a government which might seek to accelerate the process? What's, what's, the, what's the position of Energy Australia on that? I mean, does it matter to your planning at all? If I look at both sides of government now, there is a bipartisan commitment to net zero. And I think that's one of the biggest developments in the energy and the climate space for Australia of the past, almost the past decade, given the rancorous debates that have been around energy and climate. So when I look what that means, uh, very quickly, the conversation is turning from what happens in 2050 to what's the pathway to get there. And it's not just around the federal government. Obviously, the states are quite active in considering the transformations of their state grids. And uh, in that context, I think now the focus is really on how to bring it to life and less about debating the differences. It's very much though a pace, isn't it? And that comes down to all the decisions that you're going to be making about the life life of brown and black coal generators, about investments in battery storage, and we'll get then other other forms of storage, and we'll get to them sometime soon. It's um, it's very much you know it's, it's a focus of your business, surely. The pace of the transition is absolutely uh, critical to planning, as you say. Um, However, I I don't actually think there's as much debate around the speed of the transition as there has been in past decades. If I look at something like the Australian Energy Market Operators Integrated System Plan, uh, they put together the, the draft plan and ran a process whereby they asked the industry how fast they expected the transition to happen. And it was quite amazing to see that the breadth of the industry came back and said, actually, we're expecting this transition to happen um, to happen really quickly. And the way I interpret that is that 
there's, there's sort of two ways to think about it. One is, well, how would you have a 100% renewable system or a carbon neutral system? What does that look like? What are the pieces of the puzzle that need to get put in place to, to do that? And that's, that's really what that integrated system plan analyzes and puts together. And then the question from the other end is, well, given the pace at which transmission, renewables, um, some of the new elements of the system are, uh, are coming to life and being built, um, how quickly can that transition happen? So we look at both elements of that, and um, the answer, as always, is, is somewhere in the middle. And Mark, I'll just, Mark, I'll Dave, I'm going to get one question in, one other fast question uh, in there. Just on the ISP, um, the central scenario is now considered to be the fast change. Um, but some people are already leaning towards the even quicker scenario, which is the hydrogen superpower. Where do you or Energy Australia sit on those predictions? We certainly accept that the pace of the transition will be as rapid as, uh, as it's possible to do. And then the real question is how fast can that transition actually happen? And that's where the practical considerations are quickly becoming the the main game in driving the energy transition. So it's things like how quickly do the renewable energy zones in New South Wales come to life? It's things like how quickly can we test hydrogen at our Talawara B facility that we're, uh, that we're building? Uh, we're initially going to start that as a 5% as a fuel feedstock. Um, how quickly can we take that up? We'd like to see a future where that got up to 100%, but we're mindful that hydrogen isn't running 100% at any gas turbines in Australia at the moment. So it's it's really those practical considerations. How quickly can we get it in, test it, scale it, and that will determine the speed of the transition. Uh, Mark, you've been at Energy Australia, I think, for 19 years, and this is your 20th year, so... Uh, You've probably sat through the and Energy Australia is you know one of the top three gentailers in the country. Um, it, it owns a very large customer share in uh, new, retail customer share in New South Wales and Victoria, and, and lesser shares in other states. Uh, it's in electricity and gas. Over the past seven years, when I was just look, reviewing the numbers, uh, you know, your electricity volumes are, are down significantly, as are the customer numbers. But actually, the EBITDA, the earnings before interest, uh, and margins are up. As I guess my, my, you, you've talked about the ISP and the change, and I think most of us accept that. I'm just uh, my, the third question is: uh, what, Where does Energy Australia fit into it? Our role in the energy transition is one of enabling the transition. That's probably the best way to describe it. And what I mean by that is that we don't see ourselves as a renewable energy generator. That's not our core skill. We see ourselves as a retailer. And as a retailer, our job is to provide, energy, to provide electricity whenever our customers need it, when they flick the switch on and when they want to use all the devices and applications for electricity. And in that context, what we do is we act as the glue that makes all of the renewable energy available when customers need it. And that means that the portfolio we focus on is on the controllable, dispatchable, storage and flexible capacity portfolio that um, means that the system can operate under, under any weather condition. Now, today... The backup of the system when renewables are not available, if you think of it in that sort of term, is, is thermal, it's coal and gas. We can see with the large volumes of renewable energy, solar, 
wind coming into the system that coal will be retiring. And we've spoken about the scenarios under which that's playing through in the integrated system plan. The question then is, well, what um, what are the technologies that replace coal and what are the uh, the volumes of, uh, of those technologies required? We can see some of the pieces of the puzzle are already in place and we're building them. We're building the Wareen battery in Victoria, 350 megawatts, four hours storage. We're building the gas and hydrogen powered Tullawarra B power station, 300 megawatts near Wollongong. And we're, we've also supported pumped hydro. Kidston in Queensland, we've got the offtake contract there for uh, over 200 megawatts, eight hours storage. And all these pieces of the puzzle are coming together into uh, the portfolio that we're building that will gradually replace our coal-fired portfolio. That's, that's the essential role we play, is to enable the growth of renewables by making sure the system stays, uh, stays reliable and affordable as it gets cleaner and cleaner. And I think you've got the uh, potentially the Lake Lyle pumped hydro development in New South Wales, which is in competition with a number of other uh, potential developments also there. And I guess you've got the slogan, uh, uh, doing not just dreaming, uh, which is better than some of the old UBS slogan I used to have, but still takes a bit of living up to. Uh, uh, Look, I want to come on to all these new projects because they're all interesting and exciting. But first of all, I just wanted to get this bulk energy, the wind and the solar side of things out of the way, because you're still going to have to actually sell a lot of wind and solar one way or another if that's making up, you know, 70% or whatever it's going to be of the total energy supplied. And if all you're doing is supplying the firming power and, uh, you know, that's a smaller and smaller part in, in a way, uh, what, what does that mean for profits and margins? And, you know, how do you integrate all the, renew, the, the variable stuff? If you start with the industry, there is a huge amount of investment coming to bring the energy transition to life. And it's tens of billions across renewables, across transmission, across firming generation of all the pieces of the pie. If I look at Energy Australia, we are good at serving customers. We are good at operating dispatchable capacity and all of the maintenance and asset management and all those activities that, uh, that go associated with that. So we, we tend to start by sticking to our knitting. We can see that there's many billions of dollars of investment coming in serving customers directly. And that could be both by selling them off the grid the solar and wind off the grid, but it's also by uh, serve, offering them packages of distributed energy, which, uh, which we can come back to. That's another service that we're providing. So that's one area that we're investing in. And the second is really around the flexible capacity. When, when I look at good businesses, and this is not just energy, this is a, a general comment, the ones who recognize what they're good at, invest in what they're good at, and focus on that as their, their specialty are the ones that often uh, often often succeed and, uh, and get good returns, that's where we're going to play. We'll definitely buy the wind and the sun as we need for our customers, but in terms of the investments and where we'll make our returns, it comes from customers and it comes from flexible capacity. I'll just ask one more question and I'll make an observation that someone from Amcor made to me many years ago, uh, uh, which was that no one starts with comparative advantage, you, you develop it. and. Uh, um, uh, I, I only wish that was true. Maybe I'd be further ahead, but let, let's not worry about it. Um, 
On the retail side of things, I guess you've mentioned distributed energy, which has contributed to a fall in volumes. And again, the ISP and virtually everyone thinks that that's uh, going to continue, that, that households will generate and businesses a, a bigger share of their own production. And, you know, so there's what's the role for a retailer or gentailer in that? Uh, and secondly, a second question on retail generally is, uh, you know, there's a population preference for green energy but retailers don't really of your size don't tend to really focus on it they just tend to focus in and i may be wrong on this on just like price and value and reliability uh, i guess my question is is there a marketing role for someone who was to focus like i don't know octopus in the uk pretty much entirely on on, on a green energy style of things at scale Let's start with distributed energy because I agree with you that is one of the, the mega trends that's been rolling through the energy sector. And indeed, if you look at some of the forecasts, uh, some of the forecasts indicate that distributed energy might be as much as 30% of the energy generated in the system by 2050, which is enormous. And in, in that context, we see distributed energy as one of, the, uh, one of the pillars on which the energy system is going to be based on. And that's why we are launching products which combine distributed energy with the grid and do so in a very simple way for customers. Our flagship product at the moment is something called Solar Home Bundle, which we've launched in New South Wales. And in that product, we provide solar, we provide battery, uh, no upfront cost, seven-year contract after which the customer owns the, the solar and the battery. Through that period, they pay the same tariff um, through the seven-year periods, so they get price certainty, but they can also see that they're making a difference to the climate and to their own energy supply in, in the home. We like that sort of product um, construct, so we're making it simple for customers and meeting the needs and doing so in a very visible way, appealing to a lot of the green sentiments that you, that you spoke of there. The likes of Octopus and others, um, there's certainly a lot of different models that's out there. We have tended to offer a suite of products catering to different, uh, different consumer preferences, ranging from green power. We're also offered carbon neutral, and we have, we have offset more than 2.8 million tonnes of carbon through our carbon neutral offering for our customers. But we acknowledge that often tangibility is something our customers really like to see. And that's where these, these products that we're offering, combining distributed energy with the grid, People can see the solar on the roof, they can see the battery, and they can see how it all just works in, their, in the pocketbook at the end of each month. I'm wondering if we can get into some of those new projects, and I'd like to sort of kick off with storage. Um, last September, you announced that you were seeking contractors for this Wurin battery, which is going to be partially replacing your lawn, uh, the brown coal generator that will close in 2028. As you say, it's probably going to be the, well, it's, it's competing with a lot of others to be the biggest battery in Australia, but 350 megawatts and 1400 megawatt hours for our storage. Have you chosen your supplier? We haven't made that choice yet. We are in the market actively talking to a number of participants and we'll have more to say on that as and when we make, we, we make decisions. And you talked about being four-hour storage. Um, a lot of other companies have come out and said, we're going to build a four-hour battery, but they sort of said, well, in the first instance, it's actually going to be one hour or maybe two hours, and that's because of the design of the market and this sort of the nature of the market at the moment. A lot of these batteries are focused towards grid services, which requires shorter um, 
storage periods. Where do you see that sort of um, landing with uh, the Wurin battery? Is it going to go straight out to being four hours because you see some opportunities with energy arbitrage and the timing of that actual construction? Or will you go shorter duration first and then just add some more batteries for? So Wurin's designed to be four hours from the get-go. The mm-hmm. duration of storage is is something that I think will evolve very quickly. Uh, quite clearly, you can see most batteries are designed for one hour or maybe maybe something approaching two hours. When you t- do the exercise, though, of looking, well, how does, our, how does our energy system work in an environment where 100% of the energy or thereabouts comes from renewable energy, uh, it's clear that one hour duration is not enough to make that, that system work. And that's where we have tended to uh, focus not only on the one hour batteries, which we, we initially, that was our initial focus when we brought our first batteries to life through storage agreements at Gunnawarra and Ballarat and Victoria. But we've also looked at the other end with something like our Kidston pumped hydro, where we've gone for eight hour storage up in Queensland. We do think that the duration is going to become important and become important pretty quickly as this market evolves. Mm. What do you, what have you learnt from those two batteries that you operate, you've been operating in Victoria? They're both quite small batteries. Ballarat's one hour storage. Ganawara is located next to a solar farm, although it's not directly linked into it. It's got two hours. What have you learnt, and, and, and how will that apply to Kidston? Because Kidston's a different kettle of fish altogether. Two hundred megawatts, have you said, eight hour storage, or two hundred and fifty megawatts, maybe eight hour storage. That's a lot of storage. Will you be using that to sort of fill in gaps, or will it be like a cap and contract play? Um, have you decided yet? When we look back at those batteries, uh, it's quite amazing at how fast the world's changed. Because when we signed up to those batteries, those were the biggest batteries in Australia, and they felt very large at the time. <laughs> and now, as you say, they're, um, they're, they're relative minnows compared to all the announcements that are out there at the moment. Those batteries have been important for learnings, not just for us, but for the industry. They certainly demonstrated the opportunity that was out there for frequency control ancillary services and essential system stability services, the ancillary service markets. And they demonstrated quite how effective the batteries um, are in that role. That has been the main role that they have played. They haven't done as much um, pure energy storage in the sense of energy arbitrage. Uh, And we do think for the moment that's the, the role they'll continue to play. Something like Kidston, it is, uh, it is quite different with the volume of storage that it has available. And th- this is where any time you're bringing something that's a bit of a first of a kind to life, this is the first one that's been built on a merchant basis for quite, quite some time. And uh, we anticipate that the main use of it will be actually supporting customer load with us buying off solar and w- wind off the grid. Having said that, the nature of the market is evolving so quickly that uh, inevitably we will be looking at uh, at, uh, system stability services like ancillary service and frequency control and and these sort of things. And we we expect to learn quite a lot through that project as well. And just on the battery uh, in in Victoria, uh, which is due to come online, I think, in 2026, do, do you expect a system services role for it? I mean, typically system services at the moment are about 50% of a two-hour battery revenue, maybe even more. I guess I'm thinking about grid forming type of stuff and the whole system control market moving to batteries by 2030 or something like that. I certainly think the more batteries that you add to the system, the less 
the incremental business case will be around those system services. So I think Warren may well be one of the first batteries that relies more on the pure energy storage role rather than those system services. But again, the, this market has been so dynamic and so much tends to change year on year that uh, it's, it's great having such a flexible energy storage system so that we can provide the roles that best suit the market on a, on a given day, week and month. Mark, I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but I've been thinking a lot about the ISP uh, all January pretty much. <laughs> Uh, and, um, you know, it, it basically has a lower role for Victoria in the future uh, than, than, you know, Victoria's role as an energy electricity supplier declines in the NIM in most of the scenarios and more production comes from Queensland. And if you look at recent events, it would have been lovely to have a, have a battery in Queensland. I just, you know, when you think about uh, Energy Australia's business in Australia, how, how do you think about this regional perspective? As you covered in the intro, our business starts with bigger customer bases in Victoria and New South Wales. And like all businesses, we start with our, our core business and that's where we will, we will base our growth. We, do, we are quite excited about things like the Solar Home Bundle that I mentioned, and we think they're going to work just uh, absolutely fantastically in jurisdictions like Queensland and, and South Australia. But we will stick to our knitting in the first instance, focus on what we do well in the places that we do it today, and, and grow from there. Just a couple of scattered little questions. One just back on battery storage. Um, you're planning Wareen. You've got contracts with Ballarat and Ganawara and um, Kidston. How many other batteries are you thinking of building? Um, David mentioned Lake Lyle, which is a big battery, um, sorry, <laughs> pumped hydro facility. Um, can you share any immediate plans or will that evolve over time? We certainly have a number of other battery projects on the go at the moment. Uh, we are planning for our future portfolio. And as you'd imagine, when we think about that, we have to imagine a world where we don't have coal any longer. We don't know the exact timing of that. We're still working through that. But in order to get there, it does rely on having a fairly substantial amount of storage and flexible capacity. So when you look at the, if you just do the, the raw numbers, it means quite a lot more battery storage and flexible capacity is still to come. Can I uh, just uh, yes, thank thanks? I just uh, if we talk about New South Wales for a second, the last time you were on our podcast and we went through the fantastic uh, flexibility for a coal generator that uh, uh, Mount Piper has. Of course, electricity prices in New South Wales uh, are quite elevated at the moment, and I argue that one reason is that the the coal prices are very high. Could you just talk about the coal? Uh, supply outlook out, out there at Mount Piper and how, how you think about Mount Piper's future because we've also had the New South Wales Energy Plan uh, announced since we last talked. Absolutely. Maybe starting on the, the broader energy perspective, if you do look internationally at the moment, um, you can certainly see that both coal prices and gas prices are high relative to historic levels. And it does appear that worldwide there has been a reduction in the amount of investment into the, the older fossil fuels at the same time as there's been a bit of a rebound in demand from uh, the world coming back from COVID. So the, the macro perspective, as you say, tends to, to point towards higher prices. 
New South Wales tends to be an exporting coal region, and in that context, if there are, there are extra tonnes of coal being produced at the moment, um, I would suggest they're, they're heading offshore into the export market. So having said all that, there are long-term contracts that we have in place uh, for Mount Piper, as indeed the other coal-fired generators, uh, generators do. We have a, a mine called Springvale, which is the supplier to Mount Piper, it is a long wall style mine, which uh, has, as, it, as the name suggests, a long wall of coal. And uh, each wall you get to the end of, there's a changeover uh, and a period of supply disruption before um, the next wall get, um, comes on. And that's why you will see uh, production go up and down from the, from the coal mines. Uh, in the context where the export prices are up, if there are any supply disruptions at local uh, at local local mines, then the availability of more coal is is constrained, and uh, that's where if you do get a hotter than expected summer or a colder than expected winter, uh, and you do have retailers looking to buy more energy, uh, if if they need more energy, it tends to be available at higher prices, and that that certainly seems to be one of the dynamics feeding into the New South Wales market at the moment. Yeah, I'll hand back to Charles in just a second. I'd also observe that I, I don't think the coastal generators, that would be uh, 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 Delta and, and, um, and, and Origin, Vales uh, Point, that is, uh, and Araring actually do have much in the way of long-term coal contracts, and I wouldn't like to be them recontracting right now, and I'm sure it is influencing electricity prices to an extent. The, uh, before I hand back to Giles, I just want to do ask about the Talawara B. You've mentioned that it's going to be designed, and I, I don't really understand, to be capable of running on hydrogen 100% uh, from day one. I guess that there's all this stuff about embrittlement and things like that. I'm just wondering how, how what that means in terms of capital costs, and do you have to incur all that up front? Uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. We're excited about Talawara B. We do see that it is a flagship opportunity for us because we'll have hydrogen, we'll be seeking hydrogen into the turbine from the get go. And in doing this sort of project, the excitement doesn't come from 5% up front. The excitement comes from the, from the prospect of getting to very high levels of hydrogen and the, the, the Nirvana is getting to 100% hydrogen. If we can, with GE, who is supplying the turbine, if we can... Uh, make all the physical changes required to get to that outcome. Um, fantastic. We don't know yet exactly all of the uh, all of the physical changes that may be required, and it will be a, an iterative and jointly developed process with with GE, who are putting their best minds to work across the world on this project. They're just as excited about it as we are. But the uh, make no bones about it. That's what we'd like to see happen: is that we would get to 100% hydrogen learn the lessons and then be able to apply that to the rest of our, our gas-fired generation portfolio. That would be the absolute nirvana, and that's what's got us particularly excited. That, that sounds very exciting, but most analysis of the hydrogen economy and where hydrogen and green hydrogen can be used, um, it points to industrial uses and other things like that. Um, sort of uh, power generation, particularly on grid power generation, actually rates quite lowly. I think Michael Liebrecht from Bloomberg NEF um, rates at the bottom of his ladder of hydrogen opportunities. And a lot of people criticise that because hydrogen will require a lot of wind and solar to be effectively stored and then a lot lost through the process. Um, is it really going to be able to sort of compete in, in, in those sort of terms? 
The Michael Ibrick's done quite a lot of work in that space, and it's his hydrogen ladder is is well worth a read. And any listeners who haven't seen it, um, encourage them to go and go and take a look. For most power generation opportunities, I think Michael Ibrick. Uh, I don't want to quote him too much, but he, he does say wind and solar. Why would you make hydrogen out of wind and solar when you can use it directly? And I completely agree. If you can produce the power and use it, that's what we'll absolutely do. The role that he sees for hydrogen in the electricity system is in long duration storage. So this is uh, really around things like in the middle of winter when there's a wind drought. Wind droughts are infrequent, but they do happen and you just need an energy reserve to run the system off. Hydrogen actually looks like one of the better candidates because you can store um, very large volumes of it and it's a zero emissions fuel if you've produced it from renewable electricity. That sort of role to back up the system, um, that, that, that's where I do see the potential that hydrogen could be, uh, could be useful, not least because there's already so much gas-fired generation which if it can be repurposed to hydrogen, just provides uh, an efficient use of capital which keeps prices down for customers. So I, I tend to agree that hydrogen as a form of generation is going to be a backup for the system rather than the, the core game, but we don't have a lot of backups able to do the very long duration storage like weeks and uh, weeks and weeks, and it, it appears to be one of the best candidates. You're looking at some other projects, long duration storage, like such as pumped hydro. So how do they compete against each other? And you talked about sort of, you know, repurposing some of the existing gas generators. Just going back to David's question, maybe I didn't hear, properly hear the answer. But if you've got an existing gas generator, I mean, how complicated is that to actually repurpose it? Yes. So duration is something I think the industry is getting its head, head, head around. And for batteries, the first hour uh, storage is the most economic at the moment. Uh, for and that's really day-to-day system stabilization for something like Warine, four hours or for even for the Kidston pumped hydro I suspect the role that we will play will be um, daily we'll store energy in the middle of the day and use it at the end of the day maybe at the start of the day uh, day as well and we'll be using uh, that sort of storage for day-to-day week-to-week to supply the thornier problem Um, I think comes in the infrequent events when we do get wind droughts and particularly during winter. If you look at the the ISP, there's some really interesting um, edge cases there and the electricity system needs to work through all those edge cases and having batteries available at bulk just in case you need them in the middle of winter is, is a very expensive way of serving the system. This is where I do think something like hydrogen, it doesn't have to be hydrogen, there's a few other technologies people are looking at, but it is an opportunity to just provide a certain amount of energy backup for the system uh, that will allow it to work through all the, all the different edge cases. How hard is it to do? That is um, an incredibly important question, and that's where in the earlier conversation we spoke to the practical problems to work through. That's what we're going to work through first with Talawara B, understand that, and then apply it across the rest of our gas portfolio. The faster we can do that, the better off we'll all be across the energy system and across all energy consumers. 
I've got another quick question. Um, just on the green retailers, uh, I think Greenpeace and the Total Environment Centre came out with a, um, a survey this year, this week, sorry, or I think it was actually today as we're recording it. Um, it ranks some smaller sort of renewable focus retailers as the greenest, the legacy retailers such as yourselves and the other, other big of the big three, um, legacy companies, uh, down near the bottom. How much of a problem is that for you? How easy it is for a is it sorry um, for a legacy company like yours to change its spots, and more importantly, to be seen to be changing its spots? This is where we have launched doing not dreaming as a way to demonstrate the progress that we are making on bringing the energy transition to life. No bones about it. We're in the toughest spot of the energy transition in that we have the coal and the gas-fired generation that runs the system today, and we know that we want to change that to zero emissions. In order to do that, we need to get our skates on, and that's why we have accelerated the closure of your lawn, and we have committed to projects like Waureen and Kidston and uh, Talawara B. These projects take time to, to come to life. Um, for those of us within the industry, we, we understand that to an extent, if I go and speak to some of my friends and family at, uh, at Christmas events, they don't get that. They really almost come from a perspective of saying, well, why don't we just turn the coal off and turn the, um, the sun and the wind on? And when I say things like, well, we don't have enough capacity yet built on the ground, they're like, really? I didn't understand that. So I think there is an element of telling the transition story and demonstrating to our customers that we need to do the transition, um, given that there is that low amount of understanding uh, potentially out there uh, across the country. But the, the most important thing to do, and the reason we're emphasising it, is that we need to get our skates on and show that we're doing things, not just talking about it. And that's, that really leads us back to the campaign we've just launched. I agree with that. And uh, I think the overwhelming imperative is to build more supply before you can do anything. You can't close anything, uh, anything until you've got enough uh, energy and power to keep the lights on. I think, you know, some people understand that and uh, every state every, and the federal government needs to really fully understand that. Uh, and and I, I probably think, in addition, as we said many times, that if you had a schedule of when the coal plants were going to close, a definite schedule, uh, the, uh, you know, a realistic schedule, uh, then that would make the need to build the new supply that much clearer to all the people who have to make those decisions. But that's another topic. I wanted to ask a more sort of uh, investment banking question, which you may not uh, be able to give it. Uh, just how does CLP, the parent, uh, see uh, uh, Energy Australia going forward? Years ago, they were going to do an IPO of it, uh, about two or three managing directors ago. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, is it, uh, how, how do you, what, what do they talk to you about, Mark? CLP Holdings is a Hong Kong listed energy company. For those of you who aren't aware of it, it's about a US $20 billion market cap. And CLP has operations in Hong Kong, in China, in India, and Australia. CLP invested in Australia about 2000, about 20 years ago, give or take. And they did that because they could see that Australia was going to go through the energy transition and uh, also Australia was a merchant market in a way that, um, that the other markets in which they operated just didn't behave. The CLP has got all the learnings that you would expect that it wanted from the investment in Australia in terms of understanding competitive markets, understanding climate policy, which came to life in Australia before 
other jurisdictions. Uh, CLP would also say that Australia has been a uh, more volatile investment than the other jurisdictions in which they operate, and there's good and bad that, that comes with that. CLP would also say across all the jurisdictions in which they operate that the scale of the energy transition is enormous and uh, no one company, CLP or anyone else, is going to be able to fund all the activities that they would like to, like to do to reinvent the business as a zero carbon business. In that context, I, look, I'd expect to see us raising uh, capital. We haven't raised debt for a few years. Um, I'd expect to see us out there and continuing to, uh, to continuing to grow our business through, grow our business uh, by investing in those projects of the future, as you say. Because the 354 megawatt four hour battery uh, and Talawara B, uh, Kidston's already been paid for by someone else. But if you were to do Lake Lyle, it adds up to a reasonable amount of, of, of capex in, in, in total. And that can't be the end of it because even if I added the earnings from all those things up, it still probably wouldn't be as much as, as what your lawn earns now. I haven't done that some, but have you? When we look at the future, I think it's important to say that the future of what we look like in 2030 does not look like today. And a lot of what we see our business looking like in 2030 comes from the things that we're building now and the things that we've also got the, the ideas and the development plans for, things like Lake Lyle, as you say. So in order to get there, it does involve billions of dollars worth of investment. And in the context of our business, which is, has got assets value of around um, six and a half billion Australian, that's a big number. So if every company is facing that sort of investment in the future, um, it just brings to life that it does mean there's a lot of capital to raise from a lot of sources in order to bring this energy transition to life. And also while we're on the general subject of, uh, uh, of Energy Australia, there's the gas business, which like um, AGL's gas business has, has probably uh, been steady if it would it would be the best you could say for it. How do you see the future of your, I mean, you're not a gas producer. Uh, it's not uh, in the way that you are vertically integrated in electricity. You you, you have a middle uh, uh, man role. How, how do you see the, your gas business going forward? We launched our climate change statement. We updated our climate change statement rather uh, late last year. And in that we committed to scope one, two and three net zero by 2050. And in that context, what that really means is that in selling gas to customers that we need to decarbonise that. We need to get it to net zero by 2050, which really means we've, we've got to get our skates on and work on it from, from here. So the most obvious way to, uh, to work with customers is to electrify at the moment. There are a lot of opportunities around electrification of gas to reduce emissions and provide the same amenity to customers uh, as we do that. That said, there is a lot of investment on that space as well. And a lot of customers uh, will take, take a lot of comfort from their existing gas, the amenity they get from their gas heating or cooking or other sources of supply. So it will be a uh, situation where we need to demonstrate to customers the benefits of any actions that we uh, we do take to provide them zero carbon products and services to, to match what they have today. 
I'll hand back to Giles, but I just on a personal note, I've been busy last back of last year trying to electrify this house and you know, we've made a lot of improvements uh, but and we got rid of three gas heaters. But when it came to get rid of the gas cooking and the instantaneous gas hot water uh, heater, there wasn't a majority vote. I was uh, outvoted on those particular things. But I'll hand back to you, Giles. <laughs> um, i just got two very quick questions to sort of wrap up, um, Mark. Um, electric vehicles, I haven't talked much about them. Um, what are your forecasts for EV take up and how does that play into your business plan? The AEMO integrated system plan is probably as good a place to start as any. We do see a growing electricity market again. We haven't had a growing electricity market for quite some time, but as we look forward, we're quite bullish about growth of electricity demand from EVs, from uh, electrification of gas and electrification of other uh, industrial processes. And where we think that points to is about making sure there's enough energy available through customers, both from the distributed energy packages that we will, uh, we will sell to customers and, uh, and also making sure we've bought enough energy from the grid to reliably supply our customers. Just beforehand, you inferred, we talked about coal. Um, your lawn is closing in 2028. That leaves you, I think, with just um, Mount Piper as a coal generator. You inferred uh, earlier on in this podcast, I'm pretty sure, that um, you're sort of kind of reviewing or sort of you know, reanalyzing the, cl- the possible closure dates, particularly in light, I'd imagine, of the ISP from AEMO. Now, AEMO is talking about no brown coal generators beyond 2032 in the green hydrogen scenario, which could well become the central scenario in a couple of years' time. That basically models no coal generation of any type um, beyond 10 years' time. Matt Keane, the New South Wales Energy Minister, has suggested that um, the state could handle the closure of all its its coal generators within a decade. Now, you've made pretty clear that depends on enough wind and solar and storage to be built before we actually close these things. If it is, are you happy for that to close around that date? Our commitment is to net zero by 2050 and to bring that to life. So it's all about how we build a zero carbon electricity system, wind, solar, storage, flexible capacity as the backup. And as soon as we get there, I think um, uh, uh, that's when we can turn off the old system. To David's point earlier, once we have a new system in place, the old one um, will no longer be, be, be needed. That's that's the game that we're playing. That's what the energy transition means. I think we've come pretty much coming to the end of of our time, uh, Mark. Uh, I would like to say my personal thanks uh, for for talking to us about Energy Australia. And I think what I personally have learnt through this is just uh, not how hard, is is you know the the capital raising and how hard it is for an existing well the difficulty challenges and the opportunities I guess, but the challenges also for an existing big player to to, to retain that role going forward and just like to wish you all the best with it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. And that was Mark Collette, the CEO of Energy Australia. Um, David, look, pretty interesting interview. Um, normally with these CEOs, they're very practiced, don't really want to say too much more than um, what they want to say. But um, I thought some interesting insights into some of the, the thinking about this transition, the storage, the need to build wind and solar before close down coal, but the readiness, it seemed to me, to close down coal should that new capacity be built. Um, and also some interesting insights on the need for um, capital raisings. 
that's right, Giles. Uh, look, I think Mark's had a long time to think about this and get ready for it, and and uh, I think there's, I'm sure he's extremely determined to make a success of it, and it's important to uh, everyone at CLP and, and in Australia that he does so, and that the company is uh, all shares that vision. But it also showed how hard it is, you know, uh, for them and for AGL and even for Origin, and that you have to close down your main money earners, which is the coal generators, and replace them with something else. Uh, replace them with something else costs money. I, I, look, I don't want to spend too much. It was a long interview and, and it kind of speaks for itself. But uh, I will say that I don't think it's the only way to transform a Gen Taylor. It's probably a way. I think the other way myself would be to build uh, or lots of wind and solar and supply the bulk energy and focus on the retailing side of things, just been trying to win customers and get higher margins through, uh, being a purely green retailer. But, hey, what do I know? It's not my money, not my company. It's easy sitting on the sidelines, just like giving Graham, uh, Graham Arnold soccer advice. <laughs> Which I'm, perf- I'm sure you're perfectly happy to do, David, but um, and I'm sure it'd be welcome, um, considering the most recent results. Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, yes, why don't they go out and build more wind and solar? Well, I guess if they do that, then they're accelerating the end of their current business model. So why don't they just wait and see what else um, other people do and try to build defences around that? I'm not too sure. As you say, that's one way of doing it, but maybe not the only way. Just more on this capital raising. So what are their options if they need money to buy, to build all these things like the big battery, the pump? Hydro, um, Tarawara B. Um, do well. There, do, there are about three or four, three or four capital raisings that some investment bank, I'm sure, will give them lots of advice. But the obvious one is to raise some uh, debt here in Australia, uh, guaranteed in some way or another. The, another one is to have uh, special purpose uh, vehicles, uh, project vehicles for doing it. Third one would be to go into partnership on some of these assets if they wanted to, or even to pursue in the bigger chain of things, uh, mergers and acquisitions, you know, as the uh, big gentailers uh, decline in uh, total market share of energy and stuff like that, uh, they may wish to consolidate, uh, you know, to pursue a future. And, and, and the fifth one is to get some more equity or fourth or fifth one from from the parent CLP or, or, or to you know, sell or CLP could even sell some. Well, I don't think that'll happen right now. And, and some fresh equity could be raised in the process. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but all of them are ways are going to require a, a profit model that looks like it's going to offer a satisfactory returns for the new capital that's raised. Mm. Okay, interesting stuff. We shall wait and see. And um, their results come out on the uh, February 28th after AGL, which I think is this week, and Origin Energy, which is next week. So we'll be keeping a lookout for that. David, thank you very much. Um, thanks to all the listeners out there, everyone out there. Um, please do um, suggest anything, anyone else that you think that we should be uh, talking to. And of course, also thanks very much to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, for your ongoing continued support. And we'll be back again with another thrilling Energy Insiders podcast this next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. 
to one of Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.